This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. In today's episode, I wanted to tackle kind of a complex issue, and we aren't going to be able to really cover all the ins and outs. It's going to be something that we'll have to come back to several times. But I wanted to talk about forgiveness. Now, for those of you in recovery, you might be interested to know that forgiveness, just the word forgiveness, not forgive or forgiven necessarily, but just the word forgiveness occurs 10 times in the AA Big Book. One of the quotes here, this is uh, from step five on page 58 in the Big Book. It says, our moral inventory had persuaded us that all around forgiveness was desirable, but it was only when we resolutely tackled step five that we inwardly knew we'd be able to receive forgiveness and give it to. Let's see, another one is in step 12, page 116. says, we found that dependence upon his perfect justice, forgiveness and love was healthy and that it would work where nothing else would. So there are several different, uh, like I said, there's 10 different passages in the big book from AA that talk about forgiveness. And yet forgiveness is a pretty uh, complex term. I was always, I think it was in a 12 step group. I'm trying to, I've been trying to place where it was or who I heard it from. So it was either in a group that I was attending or it might've been in a conversation like with a sponsor or fellow traveler in the 12 step groups. And I tried to do a quick Google search and couldn't find the particular phrase that stuck with me at the time. And so I, I don't know if it's in the literature, if any of you are aware of it, please let me know. Cause I've been trying to narrow it down for the past couple months, but they were talking about the forgiven being forgiving. And that was such a powerful thought to me. And I, it really kind of has stayed with me over the years since I heard it about this concept of being forgiven uh, for the things that I've done or mistakes that I've made or hurts that I've caused. And then in return, because I was forgiven for what I did and took my own inventory, that others would be able to be, that I could be more forgiving when others, you know, trampled on my toes or hurt me. So I want to talk for a minute about you know, what forgiveness is. I think despite its obvious importance in social interactions, forgiveness really didn't receive much attention from psychologists up until a few years ago. Since then, there's been an enormous uh, rise in the amount of attention given to forgiveness. And this research is beginning to address what forgiveness is, how we can measure it effectively, whether it's healthy and whether different cultures and religious groups have the same views about it. So I think many of us feel intuitively that we know what forgiveness is. It's, it's actually been proven to be a theoretical challenge to actually define it. So consider the following questions. Uh, is forgiveness an emotion? Is forgiveness a behavior? Right? Is it an internal process? Is it an external process? Can you do one, you know, can you internally feel forgiveness without doing anything, right? I've worked with, with people before who would say like, I feel like there's forgiveness in me. I've, I've gotten to that point of peace. And yet I'm afraid to let the person know that I've forgiven them because I don't trust that they won't do it again. 
So, you know, can we have it just internally and not externally? Researchers Julie Exline and Roy Baumeister have proposed that forgiveness has both internal and external elements. So it's got this emotional internal part as well as a behavioral element, which is external. And psychologists generally define forgiveness as a conscious, deliberate decision to release feelings of resentment or vengeance toward a person or group who has harmed you, regardless of whether they actually deserve your forgiveness. So I think just as important as defining what forgiveness is, is also understanding what forgiveness is not. Experts who study or teach forgiveness make clear that when you forgive, you do not gloss over or deny the seriousness of an offense against you. So forgiveness does not mean that I forget, uh, nor does it mean I condone or I excuse the offenses against me. I think forgiveness can help repair a damaged relationship. However, it does not obligate you to reconcile with the person who harmed you or release them from any legal or moral accountability. So when we're talking about forgiveness, I think forgiveness often brings the forgiver peace of mind and then frees him or her from the corrosive anger that comes from holding on to the resentment or harboring those ill feelings. So there is still some debate over whether true forgiveness requires positive feelings towards the offender. Um, most experts agree that it at least involves letting go of deeply held negative feelings for the person forgiving. And in that way, it empowers the person to recognize the pain that they suffered without letting that pain define you or enabling you to heal and move on with your life. Now, sometimes I think some of the myths that are around forgiveness have to do with maybe some religious things or sayings, kind of this, like, I forgive quickly. There's this expectation that to be a good person, I'm going to quickly forgive. And we also kind of talk about, sometimes there might be myths having to do with like what you can feel angry or resentful or have problems with. Like where does forgiveness actually need to come from, right? And maybe at times you're feeling bad, but you feel like, I, I don't know that other people would agree that I would I should be feeling sad or angry or resentful about what happened to me. So I think sometimes forgiveness has to be something that happens on a daily basis. Uh, if you're working a 12-step program, this would kind of be step 10, where we're taking a moral inventory every day and looking at uh, what did I do? What did others do to me that might cause problems if I'm not addressing and letting go of or, or like quickly kind of working on? So just for a minute, I want you to imagine all of the ways that people hurt or annoy each other in, a, in a, any given day. So it could be the barista at the coffee house took too long to make your latte and then use low-fat milk instead of regular or as I like almond milk as you ordered. When you finally got the right coffee and drove off in your car, someone cut you off, cut you off in traffic, making you spill your latte on yourself. All of this happened on your birthday, which by the way, your best friend forgot about. And as a matter of fact, the coffee stained shirt was a birthday present from this same friend two years ago. And here they are forgetting about your birthday today. So you can imagine that such a day might test whether you're prone to ruminate and be angry or whether you tend to forgive. And again, in this example, forgiveness wouldn't look like I just push it aside and tell myself, I don't have a right to feel that way or 
that I just kind of ignore it and go about my day. Um, I think it's these instances that we have to look at and say, how are these things impacting me? And what is my process? Am I resilient with this? And resilient, again, doesn't mean avoiding it or ignoring it. So I think another thing we could say is that this is just a normal day for me and I'm just overly sensitive, right? I'm more sensitive than other people. However, I think most even easygoing people frequently can get aggravated or annoyed or frustrated by others. And if we aren't in this process of forgiving people for these maybe more minor hurts, whether they're real or imagined, our lives would be filled with anger and spite. And we might spend our time kind of plotting and carrying out revenge or avoiding people that we could and should be close to. Um, I think forgiveness can free us from this kind of life and it allows people to live together and to get on with their lives and to know how to how to navigate when we're stepping on each other. And I think it can be one of the most important factors in promoting peace between people and well-being and healthy relationships. So let's talk about for a minute, is there anything that's unforgivable? So psychologist Irvin Staub has suggested that forgiveness is necessary even after acts of murder or genocide in order to promote healing, reconciliation, and psychological well-being. And this idea is consistent with new findings by psychologists Lauren Toussaint and John Webb. So Toussaint and Webb surveyed more than 400 people six to nine months after September 11th, asking the responders of the survey how forgiving they felt toward the terrorists themselves and toward other people in general. Their results showed that, not surprisingly, people found it significantly more difficult to forgive the terrorists than to forgive themselves or other people. Still, the researchers found that feelings of forgiveness toward the terrorists were more common than they had expected. About 42% of respondents seemed willing to consider forgiving the terrorists. Those feelings of forgiveness held regardless of whether respondents reported being directly or indirectly affected by September 11th attacks. And what's more, people who felt more forgiving toward the terrorists in general reported significantly lower levels of depression and anger, fewer symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder than people who did not. So Toussaint said he was surprised and amazed by respondents' ability to forgive. He said, you can think of forgiveness as a healing ointment for the incredible wounds people suffer from events as heinous as September 11th. He said, I'm not advocating turning around and forgiving on September 12th. But six months later, a fair number of people in our survey suggested that that's what they were at least starting to do. So I, I wanted to talk about for a minute because I think, again, this research, as I read it, kind of suggested to me that maybe there is this process um, that people who suffer even serious things, but also minor things, that we may move towards and in this process that eventually leads us to forgiveness and that that's part of us working through and processing. Now, obviously, there can be a lot of things that get in the way of us continuing to move through this process in an uninterrupted fashion. And I think uh, a, a lot of that has to do with things that happened previous and things that maybe we haven't addressed or we haven't addressed at this level, whatever this level means, right? So we're going to keep talking about this, but I want to talk for a minute about how 
just the struggle with forgiveness and sometimes even that word. I find as a therapist, it's something I have to be mindful about the timing of when I either even approach that subject with somebody who's in therapy and working through some uh, serious abuse or trauma of any type. So one of the things I think that people can struggle with is they either are unable to forgive or they forgive too quickly without fully processing their emotions or resolving their situation. And what I've witnessed sometimes is this expectation that oftentimes they hold for themselves or maybe people in their lives are actually trying to get them into this place of forgiveness. And so they're moving there too quickly or they're really angry and unable to forgive at all. I think it is that we haven't fully processed the emotions. And a lot of this has to do with uh, grief emotions. Right. So I will say to clients like you're in a grief process and we have to look at that and feel all of that before we're even going to get to forgiveness. Like if you're angry right now, like your body is letting you know an aspect of what happened to you and it, you need to feel it and deciding that you don't have a right or it's not OK to feel angry because you need to forgive really is going to, I think, confuse and actually slow down the process. So you might be asking, what's grief got to do with this? Well, to understand, I think we have to examine the nature of forgiveness and the process of grief. So briefly, we are only confronted with the issue of forgiveness because someone has hurt us. Typically, when we're hurt, some sort of loss is involved, such as a loss of trust, or a loss of our self-image. Um, oftentimes we think of grief only having to do with death. And I think we miss how frequently grief may be happening to us if we're only thinking of it in terms of the death of a loved one. So when we experience any type of loss, in order to regain our equilibrium, to be at peace again, we have to process the emotions and we have to resolve the situation. And I think forgiveness is part of this process. I usually tell clients what I've observed or what I find with working with so many people is that it comes towards the end, kind of when we're almost done with that process. And so then forgiveness makes sense because I can let go of it. I've, I've finished it, right? I've completed it. But I also think that's not fully the way to look at forgiveness or grief. I think as long as there are relationships, there's going to be a need for forgiveness. So I shared this story a long time ago. This was more towards the beginning of the podcast, so several years ago. And I, I want to share it again um, because I think it applies. So this is a Buddhist parable, and it's about the mustard seed. So there was a mother whose child died, and she is grief-stricken. She is heartbroken, as any parent who loses a child is going to be. So she wraps the body of her child in a linen cloth, and then she wraps this linen cloth holding her child around her body. And she goes to different people in her village, people like faith healers, witch doctors, shaman, etc. And she's trying to find somebody who can resuscitate her child and bring life back to her child and to her as well. Because she's not living, right? She's in this grief process. So all of the people she's seeking help from listen to her. They have sympathy for her. But they say, I, I can't help you. That's not something I can do. I can't, I can't bring your child back to life. 
So she goes to one of the tribal elders. And as he listens to her story and he feels her pain and her heartbreak, he says, I can't help you, but I know a guy. And he's a holy man. He's on top of a mountain. And if you go to him, I think he'll be able to help you. So she travels three days up the mountain to meet this holy man. And the holy man says to her, I can help you, but I need to make a potion. And in order to make this potion, I need a certain ingredient. And I need a mustard seed. But it can't be just any mustard seed. This mustard seed has to come from a home that has not had the son of darkness visit it. It can't, this home cannot have experienced suffering or death or grief. So she travels back down the mountain. She returns to the marketplace and she starts going home to home and asking if they had mustard seeds. And then also if this home had suffered any tragedy or grief. As she would talk to them about, I need this mustard seed and this is why I need the mustard seed. And she would share her story about why she needed this mustard seed and that it had to come from a family who hadn't experienced grief or loss or tragedy or suffering. They would end up opening up and sharing their story about, I can't be the one to give you the mustard seed because here's my story of suffering or my story of loss or tragedy or heartbreak. And as she asked one of her fellow villagers if they had experienced death, the response was, the living were few, but the dead were many. And as she continued to go house to house, talking to the people in her village, talking to her neighbors, talking to her fellow tribe members, and shared with them her suffering, and they in return shared their suffering and their grief, what she came to realize is that she too could let go of this child and she could bury this child in the earth and she would find ways to move on because she had connected to people who had also experienced suffering and loss and tragedy in their life. What I love about this story is that the wise man didn't tell her that she was being unrealistic. He didn't tell her that what she was desiring really couldn't come to pass. His response to her was, I can help you. And then he provided a pathway for her to grieve this loss, but not to grieve it alone. She was able to connect with others who had also experienced suffering. When we're looking at forgiveness, I think we first have to examine and explore and connect with other people about our own suffering and about our own tragedy and about our own heartbreak. So I think often people think of healing, if it's shown on a graph, as a straight line, kind of rising upward, showing progress. And although they recognize that healing has its ups and downs, they kind of expect movement to average out to this pretty straight line showing gradual improvement with time. And I think if we think of progress this way, then when an issue that they've already dealt with comes up again, they feel like they've been backsliding or that they are starting all over or that square one or they're doing something wrong. So I will often say, think of the work that you're doing in progress more in a circular, in a cyclic pattern. Or I found this idea, um, the concept of recursion, which may describe more accurately what people experience when they are healing. So the word recursion comes from computer science and it refers to a method of programming where the ultimate solution to a problem depends upon having solved previous aspects of that problem. So in this way, we're building upon so to best explain the recursive process, think of a spiral staircase. And what you see instead of a straight line 
is a line that proceeds in a circular fashion, rising from level to level. And when you walk to a higher level on a spiral staircase and you look at the view, it's the same as what you saw at the same point on the lower level, but your perspective has changed and you now see it in a different way from the higher viewpoint. So many times my clients will say, I thought I resolved this issue. Why is it coming up again? Why am I dealing with this again? And again, if you think of this progress as a spiral, you can see that it's rising from level to level. However, as you proceed through each level, you come back again and again to the same point and the same issue with a different perspective, right? With maybe a different level. Sometimes I will say to clients, like, I think you've leveled up. Like you've completed the level that you were working on it at. And now you're leveled up and you have to look at this from a new angle. There's more to learn. There's more to experience. There's more to see from a different level. And I think this describes how we heal from the emotional traumas and losses and sufferings in our life. We return to an issue again and again. And this may seem a little bit like going backwards, but if we represent it as a straight line, then it does feel like we're moving backwards, right? That we're doing something wrong because we're now going backwards, which we don't think of as progress. But if we represent it as a spiral, right? Or a cycle that we keep kind of reorbiting, then we see that we're moving upwards. We're dealing with the same issue just in a different way and from a different ability. So many people are familiar with the stages of grief. There's denial, anger, bargaining, sadness, and then acceptance. And what they don't realize is that these stages often overlap. They're not in this linear fashion. And sometimes we proceed in a different order and they can occur as we face different life challenges. So a toxic parent that has caused a lot of devastation for a child who that child is now an adult, that may go, that loss or that trauma may go unrecognized because they're now an adult, right? But as a survivor of a toxic parent or other childhood abuse proceeds through life, they may be slapped in the face again and again with the consequences of that upbringing and how that has this ability to show up in their present. And so a person who is working on resolving the impact of the childhood trauma may think that they've moved on and then they discover another emotional reaction or consequence of the toxic parenting. I will often say to clients sometimes, you know, you may have now parented five-year-olds, but you haven't parented 15-year-olds. And that's a different experience. There's some parallels and there's some similarities. And it's also a different experience when the child's 15 versus five. So it may bring up things for you at a different level than when you processed it as a five-year-old. So I think the consequences of trauma impact a person repeatedly and profoundly throughout the lifetime. But a person can only process a piece of that trauma at a time. So otherwise it's too overwhelming. Otherwise we get shut down. So I think instead of saying I've moved on, it's more accurate to say I've resolved this level, but I'm probably going to revisit it again. I'm probably going to still learn something from this process. And I know that this isn't comfortable for people. Like we want to put pain and suffering behind us. We don't want to keep visiting it. One thing I found in my own life is that as I proceed through the levels, it becomes less and less painful. In fact, sometimes I can anticipate the next level with some curiosity instead of this impending doom. And I think this comes with the change of perspective and not expecting that life should be pain-free. I see life as an ongoing process of growth, one where there is always more to learn. And this straight line concept implies 
one path with kind of this final destination. Whereas I think the spiral or the cycle seems to more be more consistent with the concept of lifelong learning. I also think uh, one way to process this growth is that each of us may have kind of our primary life issues and we're gonna to return to them again and again if we can allow that for ourselves. Uh, by accepting that it is never fully resolved, we can be more at peace when we do return to it. Instead of fighting it with, wait, I thought I was done with that. We can recognize this issue as part of the puzzle of who we are and how we are. And we begin to even enjoy that path of self-discovery and what I find in this upcoming wrestle or what I find in this challenge of looking at this again and finding something new or a new gem that comes from this. One of my friends who's been on this podcast before, uh, she's a colleague, Mari Lee. She coined the term, the gift in the wound, right? That we keep looking over and over for the gift in the wound. And I think we like being able to take a walk and see something new around the turn of the path or traveling to a different country or part of the world and experience life in a different way and see how other people do things. I think self-discovery can be similar and we can look forward to finding the next gift in the wound. I think if we approach this though with judgment or criticism of ourselves, then we're going to be fearful of what we might discover and we might have a difficult time changing our perspective. At some point, you may not need to be critical of yourself anymore and you can view the situation in a different way and there's offering some forgiveness and some acceptance about yourself and what you did and couldn't and didn't know to do and how you are doing it differently now. I think our emotional and mental health depends on our ability to forgive others, but also we have an even greater need to forgive ourselves for our own past transgressions and learn from them the lessons that we were intended to learn in order to move beyond them. Constantly beating ourselves up for something we have done in the past will not change what happened but it will affect our ability to be happy and to have acceptance for self and to truly love and accept ourselves who we are now. I think we're all human beings with imperfections and failings that we can learn from. And as we open our hearts and begin to forgive and to grieve and to accept the aspects of ourselves that we have previously judged and rejected, we become more compassionate and loving towards ourselves as well as to others. As we begin to forgive ourselves, we find that we are more forgiving of others. And we learn to truly live our lives fully rather than just surviving or waiting for a misfortune to hit us. We experience grief and pain, but we also become able to love with all of our hearts. And we can start to drink deeply from the well of compassion and empathy that nourishes all who can drink from that deep level, the level of our own humanity. I think ultimately healing is within each of us and we have to have patience with that process and recognize that we may address issues at different levels over and over again until one day we realize that a big part of that issue has been healed. And that doesn't mean there's not still more to learn, but a lot of that has been healed. I think in the end, our lives are about the stories we live and the stories we tell ourselves about life. And forgiveness or grieving is a story about putting the past in its place and letting go with this affirmative change in our hearts so that we can live in our present and our future. And it has power that is worth exploring again and again. If you find yourself dealing with some grief and loss that you can't quite seem to move through or it's too heavy, sometimes it can be important to do this work of understanding and grieving the loss in a group setting. 
So one of the things um, that I'm excited about is over on One Layer Deeper, Amy Smith and I, who are the One Layer Deeper team, have planned um, an intensive. It's a three-day intensive, October 10th through the 13th here in Salt Lake City. And the, the topic of this intensive is grieving the losses and understanding more and accepting more about the losses that have come into our life so that we can move forward with this change in our hearts that we can then live in our present and our future. If that's something that you feel you would benefit from, you can check out that intensive and the information about that over on onelayerdeeper.com. That's all spelled out, onelayerdeeper.com. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.